get up. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Sports Psych Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony K. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at AK Sports Psych. On this episode, we're talking Michael Jordan. The documentary The Last Dance is arriving soon, and we're going to talk about if he is the greatest or not the greatest of all time. The NFL draft and what struggles the teams will have to face this year not being able to have physicals on their players before the draft happens. In our featured segment, we're going to be talking with Dr. Jonathan Gelber, who wrote The Cobra Effect, Tiger Woods' back and Tommy John's elbow, and get some insight into what is the Cobra Effect and um, why it affects everyone, not just pro athletes. And lastly, in spoiler alert, sports. That's all I'm going to say. You're going to have to wait to the end to hear the rest. In the next couple of weeks, The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan Chicago Bull documentary is going to be released. What has happened with this release being pushed forward in April is the debates over who's the greatest NBA player of all time have started to percolate. And I got to tell you, I love it because I can see the divide between people 100% based on their age. My dad will tell you that Bill Russell is the greatest of all time. He's got the most championships. He's the only person that could stop Wilt Chamberlain. He was a beast. Unstoppable. Okay? I can't really argue that because I didn't see him play. My older brothers will tell you it was magic. It was Bird. Because they grew up watching 80s basketball. And what else would they think? I will tell you, until the day I die, it was Michael Jordan. Watching basketball throughout the 90s, there was nobody better. If you ask my son, he'll tell you it's LeBron James. And I understand that. It's hard to compare players from different eras. It's hard enough to compare them as it is. But to compare someone you never saw versus someone you're seeing is virtually impossible. But let's try to compare at least Jordan and LeBron today. So obviously it's really hard because they are two different players, two different styles, Two different bodies, two different bodies of work, two different bodies physically. However, let's talk to the two or three points that I hear most often as to why LeBron is better. So the number one argument I hear is, well, LeBron has, there's better teams today. Jordan never played anybody. When the reality is, if you compare teams in terms of wins, and really that's all we have to go by, Jordan actually faced stiffer stiffer competition getting and winning his NBA titles. In fact, Jordan's Bulls defeated seven 60-plus win teams and 20 50-plus win teams. So 27 of his 37 playoff opponents had records of 50 wins or more. In comparison, 18 of LeBron's opponents, 18 out of 37, had under 50 wins. We'd know the East was weak. We always complained that the East was weak. So we can't really use that as a a reason why LeBron's better than Jordan because he went through a weak Eastern Conference. Add to that, imagine what uh, what Michael Jordan, excuse me, 
what his numbers would have been like going up against those types or lack of defenders and the faster kind of run-and-gun style that the NBA is playing today. Jordan was guarded by defensive players of the year. Sidney Moncrief, Alvin Robinson, Dennis Rodman, Gary Payton, Rodman four times. And he did face what, you know, not the traditional zone, but he did face what was considered a zone trap. He, the Detroit Pistons and New York Knicks had Jordan rules specifically set out to stop him when he came into the lane. I challenge you to give me what LeBron James's game would have looked like if he had two, three defenders knocking him on the ground every time he got into the lane. I don't know that he could handle that physical abuse, regardless of how big he is. The other one that I hear is he never had to play against a zone. When in fact, when he was 38 years old, he was an MVP candidate prior to his knee injury. He was averaging 25.1 points, 6.2 rebounds, and 5.3 assists. The only other person in that year in 2002 that was averaging 25, 6, and 5? Tracy McGrady. So if you take a look back, and again, I understand that it's hard, you have to look at those numbers and those teams that he played against as stronger defender teams. They all had more wins, so that's not really an argument that you can use. The second one I hear a lot is the fact that Jordan had help, right? Scottie Pippen. His record without Scottie Pippen was lackluster. I'm going to really answer that with one one sentence. Did LeBron ever win a championship without help? No. He's a great player. Don't get me wrong. In fact, I refuse to put active players on my greatest of all time list with the exception of LeBron James. So I do have a lot of respect for him. So that being said, what's my last point when it com- compares to Jordan against LeBron? Now, this is a tough one. This is a really tough one because re- you really have to use your imagination on this one. Take LeBron James, his shooting, passing, high turnovers, right? His, he brings up the ball. Take his style of play, his heart, his determination, and put that in the body of Michael Jordan. So now he doesn't six foot six, two twenty. So not a big, you know, six foot eight, two hundred sixty five pound dominant bully. A smaller frame. Would he be as successful in a smaller body? The reality is no. He turns the ball over too much. He's not a great shooter, and he wouldn't be able to kind of bully his way through. Um, through the paint like he does today. Take Michael Jordan. Take his game and put it into someone the size of LeBron James. Would he be better or worse? My argument is it's pretty easy to say that he'd probably be significantly better. Bigger, stronger, faster. With his heart and determination to win. So those are just a few. And there's 20 more. But I'd love to hear your comments and thoughts on who's the greatest of all time. And who's your Mount Rushmore of basketball? I'm going to give that, I'm actually on my next episode, the four greatest players of all time and why. <laughs> I'm excited. We are going to have an NFL draft as scheduled. 
well, not quite as scheduled because we are not going to be able to go to Vegas and watch it live and in person, which honestly sucks because that was going to be fun. However, we are going to have a draft. Nonetheless, it's not going to be delayed. And it's one of my favorite events of the year. Next week on our podcast, we have our NFL draft analyst who's going to be joining us and taking us through a mini mock draft. We're talking about the top 10 picks, the risers, the fallers, some surprise picks, and who you should watch for on the draft board. That's next week. This week, however, I want to talk about the NFL draft on a different level as it relates to physicals and those being discontinued due to COVID-19. There's quite a few players, as always, who have some injury questions. The biggest name, of course, being Tua, the quarterback, who's probably, give you a sneak peek to the mock draft, going probably five or six to the Chargers or Dolphins, unless a trade-up happens, which is very possible, although I am not predicting one. But it brings me to this. Normally, in NFL drafts, the players are doing their combine pro days, teams are doing their interviews, and doing their physicals. And they're able to determine those players who either had nagging injuries throughout their college careers, had major injuries during their college careers, or maybe have an undisclosed injury heading into the draft. And you see a lot of movement and slipping up and down the draft board based on those physicals. It's affecting free agency. It's also affecting the draft. So I'm going to make a really eh, bold prediction and say there is going to be five players in the first round of this year's draft that do not play next year due to an injury that would have been caught had they been able to have physicals. So on your notepads, because I know you guys are taking notes as I'm talking, make sure you write down Anthony K, Sports Psych Podcast, five players missing the season due to injuries that were pre-existing. It's going to make for quite an interesting first part of the season and training camp because there's people that they're expecting, and I'm, don't forget, I'm just talking first round. So out of 32, five. So that first round, you're going to see players who are picked and thought to be day one starters that are going to be sitting on the bench in their sweats holding a clipboard. So watch for that in this year's NFL Draft. Welcome back to the Sports Psych Podcast. This is your host, Anthony Kay. Very fortunate to have with us Dr. Jonathan Gelber, who wrote a book called Tiger Woods' Back and Tommy John's Elbow, Injuries and Tragedies that Transform Careers, Sports, and Society. This book focuses on the Cobra effect. So, John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And uh, let's, let's start with what the Cobra effect is, uh, because I don't think, I think we've heard the term, but maybe give us some background on the origins of it. Yeah, the, the Cobra effect is really the central theme of the whole book. So the book looks at sports and non-sports instances where we've had unintended consequences and how those reactions to sports injuries and tragedies 
have affected career sports and society through something called the Cobra Effect. So the Cobra Effect is a concept where it starts with a story, really a legend, uh, in Imperial India. At the time, there was uh, too many venomous snakes, too many cobras, and they were starting to invade the village. And so what the government decided to do is they decided to come up with a solution by helping the uh, having the villagers help them to kill the snakes. So what would happen is the villagers would go out, they'd kill the snakes, they would skin them, and then they would sell the skins back to the Raj for a bounty, for a reward. And so they started this program, and snake skins were coming in by the basket load, and bounties were going out. But pretty soon they discovered that the level of the snake population wasn't changing. So they did some investigation, and they found that some of the villagers were just making farms to raise cobras to kill them and sell their skins for the bounty. So once they found this out, they canceled the bounty program. So all of a sudden, all these farmers who had all these cobras didn't have anywhere to sell them, so they just released them back into the wild. And so now the snake population increased. So the net result was you had an increase in the snake population, the very opposite than intended consequence. And so that idea where you have a well-intentioned idea, but the way you go about solving it actually makes the problem worse, that's the cobra effect. Okay, so so making trying to create a solution that actually makes the problem worse. How does that relate to Tommy John surgery? So Tommy John surgery is a sports medicine doc. That's a surgery that I, I see and I am part of witnessing this ever-increasing rise in Tommy John surgeries. And what's perhaps the most shocking thing about Tommy John surgery is that it is the happening in the greatest group right now is 15, 16, and 17-year-olds. So teenagers are getting the surgery, and it's the increasing rate among teenagers that's concerning. So for those of your listeners who don't understand what Tommy John surgery is, so what happens if a pitcher, for example, is pitching and they tear the inner ligament in their elbow, that ligament helps to stabilize the elbow. It's called the UCL. Without that, you can't pitch. You can't do a lot of overhead activities. So the surgery is named after Tommy John, who's the first pitcher who had the surgery done. And that ligament is either repaired or reconstructed to help stabilize the elbow. And so it got Tommy John back. He actually mm-hmm. had about half of his career after the surgery. And we've been using it ever since. But unfortunately, there has become a myth around the surgery. And some of the, the myths are that it actually can improve your performance. So there was a study done by Columbia University. One of the Yankees docs actually helped start the study. And they interviewed members of the Major League Baseball media, as well as high school coaches and high school players in two different studies. And nearly half of them did not know you needed an injury to have the Tommy John surgery. And about just as many thought it was a performance enhancer, which really isn't true. There's many, many studies out there that show your your speed doesn't improve, you know, accuracy, things like that don't improve. You might get some improvement in things like ERA, but that's actually a variable that is much more than just the strength of the pitcher's arm. It has to do with field players behind you, a lot of other things. So there's really very scant, if any, evidence that suggests that this is actually a performance enhancer. But the problem so is people... I can jump in for a sec. I was just going to ask, so yeah. were there whether it be major league players or, or younger pitchers that were actually going out and asking to have the surgery before having an injury because of that well, misconception? Yeah, there are some people that, that weren't even aware that you needed that, which is crazy. And I've, and I've talked to even you know, people who, who are high-level uh, you know, 
analysts and things of that nature. And, and they weren't always aware that it was something that wasn't done electively. In fact, there are some podcasts out there debating Tommy John's surgery. Is it really performance enhancers such as, you know, a steroid thing? Uh, and it's like not something you just do to enhance your performance. A doctor would never do it without an injury. So right. there's a lot of hear, information out there. Yeah, because I, I feel like it, every major league pitcher um, or half of everyone you hear has had Tommy John or it's almost a, hey, he's going in for Tommy John. Yeah, he'll be back. He'll be fine. Like it's a very common thing that everyone's just getting done. Yeah, it's it's thought in some circles almost as a rite of passage, which is is not a good thing because you don't always come back. In fact, you know a certain percentage, uh, you know maybe about fifteen percent, don't get back to the same level. So it's not this thing that you want to have, and it's not going to make you a better pitcher. In fact, even elbow injuries in general, as a younger person, the uh, Yankees doc actually came out with a study in 2019 showing that if you had elbow injuries. As a kid or as an adolescent, your rate of having Tommy John surgery as a major league pitcher or professional pitcher went up significantly. So it's this whole idea that we really need to be avoiding these elbow injuries in kids. And problem is we have a different era of baseball now. Mm-hmm. So things that help prevent injuries are, for example, not playing baseball year-round. You have to take at least two months off. You can play another sport, just not baseball. And we have kids who are playing year-round. They're playing on more than one team. They may not be following pitch counts, or they might be pitching through pain. And these are all things that increase your risk of elbow injury. In fact, Tommy John himself, he grew up in a different era where there were multiple seasons and multiple sports for different seasons. You had summer, you had spring, you had fall, you had winter. In fact, he was a basketball player. He had multiple offers for college scholarships for basketball, just one for baseball. And it just so happened that he chose the baseball one. And Eventually, he he actually pitched through pain as a kid, and you know what happened? He ended up with the Tommy John surgery, and that's why it's yeah. named for him. Mm-hmm. So, so, so for those pitchers that have kind of gone through their careers and never had to have a surgery, is it is it tied to them playing different sports, taking time off? Is it pitch count? Is it just there's just certain people who you know recover faster? Uh, from, you know, working out or pitching, like, you know, I, I always use the example Nolan Ryan would pitch complete games all the time, and you just don't see that anymore. Is that just that individual or specific to kind of his training regimen or a combination? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, uh, you know with, with elite athletes, you always have to take it with a grain of salt because they are elite athletes. They are who they are because of their body and where they grew up and their mechanics. So, you know, a lot of it isn't necessarily applicable to every athlete, not even every other professional athlete, but there are definitely some differences. You know, I think pitchers now are bigger and stronger, uh, but if we go back to that other concept of, you know, where did they get the, along their path? How did they get there? And so, you know, as I mentioned, Tommy John, and, you know, even when I was younger, we were playing different sports in different seasons. And several years ago, there was a math made of all the 300-game winners in professional baseball, meaning you've had to pitch long enough to do well enough to get 300 wins. And if you looked at it, the majority of those pitchers at that time came from the northern half of the United States, which at that time was not an area where you could play baseball year-round. So this idea that you know their pathway even leading up to there, how many pitches they've even pitched over their career leading up to Major League Baseball – actually has a, a significant effect on things. And the other thing you mentioned is pitch counts, and we're certainly trying to follow those, but 
it's really hard to, to come up with a specific number, especially if you look at younger kids. You know, a 14-year-old could be short and skinny or it could be large and a football player, you know, and they're, they're the same age. So that, that makes things a little harder, as is the fact that we're not counting pitches in warm-ups. We're not counting pitches in the bullpen. We're not right, counting right. pitches in practice. So, you know, that, the pitch count idea is, is a good one. Unfortunately, you know, we need to fine-tune that a little bit more, I think. Okay. So we're uh, here with our guest, Dr. Jonathan Gelber, who wrote the book Tiger Woods' Back and Tommy John's Elbow, Injuries and Tragedies that Transformed Careers, Sports, and Society. And one of the things that we've talked about is the Cobra Effect. So how does that then apply to Tiger Woods' back? So with Tiger's uh, story, there, there are really two elements. So the first one is his, his back, the physical injury that he's had over the years. Because Tiger has a very violent swing, and he puts a lot of stress on his back. So over the years, the discs between his back have worn away. Oftentimes, they were bulging and pinching nerves. And so he had surgeries to take out part of the disc that, to take the pressure off the nerve. But eventually, you run out of disc to take out. And so then you have to start fusing the bones of the spine together. And that's what Tiger had done. And because you start fusing bones together, those discs above and below where you fuse, now they have to do more work and they start to wear away. And so with Tiger, he's starting to feel these effects. We've seen him, you know, having to pull out of of more and more tournaments. In fact, he just had to pull out of the Players' Championship not too long ago. Mm -hmm. He can still win. We've seen that with the Masters, which I actually had to change the ending of my book because he was still ranked 100th in the world before that happened. And, you know, he has the skill. I just don't think he's going to have the longevity. He needs to be more more picky in what he plays and and which majors and, and for how many each year. Uh, so that's that's the, that's the back story, but the the real story of the society impact is his addiction to pain medicine, which we kind of didn't really focus on. We knew he went to rehab, uh, and that kind of was the end of that story, but it's actually much more serious than that. I mean, he was found on the side of the road in Jupiter, Florida, and he, he if you actually watch the video online, it, you think he's drunk, but there's no alcohol in the system. I mean, there was some THC, but... You know, the, the main effect was the fact that he had taken Vicodin because he needed it for the pain or felt that he needed it for the pain. He was also taking Xanax to help him sleep and for anxiety. And we already know about the opioid crisis in America, but he actually combined the Xanax with the opioid, and that's even more deadly. And so that's something that we haven't even started to talk about really in this country is a combination of prescriptions, sometimes not even by the same doctor. Uh, but the fact that also these professional athletes are coming out of sports, you know, we have some evidence from the NFL, some surveys in the Players Association, showing a high percentage of these athletes leaving their sport addicted to pain medicine. So we're doing something, a short-term Band-Aid. So we're trying to get them out through this pain, get them back out there. But then we end up making the problem worse because then they become addicted to pain medicine. So that's you know another illustration of the way the COBRA effect can work with Tommy John. We have the surgery, which is great. It gets pitchers back. But now we have people who are you know, doing too much because we have the surgery and the injury rate is increasing. This, this concept then transfers to the Tiger story and professional athletes where we're trying to get them back to their sports. But in the essence, we may end up harming them in the long term by creating an addiction to pain medicine. Right. Yeah, and that's, and that's what I was going to say is you, you're, you're doing that short-term get rid of the pain. But what are the long-term effects? Because the stories are endless. Uh, when you look at that addiction to painkillers, and you're, I think you're right, especially in football. So while you're, while you're writing this book, and 
and kudos to you because I'm not an avid reader, I'll be honest, but your book had me sit down and actually read through it and get to the end, which is, is a huge accomplishment for me. So, so I really liked the fact that you looked at a lot of different aspects as you went through this. What was one of the stories that maybe as you're doing the research or writing the book that really stood out to you or surprised you the most? Yeah, the one that, that sort of surprised me the most was really the Len Bias story. So Len Bias was a basketball star in college, and he was the number one draft pick. He was picked by the Boston Celtics. He was going to play alongside Larry Bird. And that weekend after the NBA draft, he went back to college, and he was celebrating with his friends, and he actually ended up dying and overdosing was likely cocaine. And so this death of Len Bias, this, this young future star actually sent shockwaves not only through the sports community, but through the political community as well. This is a time when our, our nation was focusing on the war on drugs. There was an election cycle involved. And so Len really became a lightning rod for those who were trying to focus their efforts on the war on drugs, especially crack cocaine, which is interesting because Len most likely died of, of powdered cocaine, not crack right. cocaine. But what ended up happening was we as a nation, we passed these drug laws, mandatory minimum sentences, that if you got busted with a certain amount of drugs, you went away for a certain period of time. But these laws were actually skewed heavily towards crack cocaine and not powdered cocaine, because at the time, most of the media was focusing on the dangers of crack cocaine. And we've since learned that both crack and powdered cocaine are, are very dangerous, and, and some of the effects of the crack cocaine over the powdered cocaine were, were possibly misinterpreted or over-exaggerated. Both of them were obviously bad, but the, the focus on the crack cocaine really prompted this skewing so that what happened was you had higher sentences with if you got caught with a crack cocaine, and the majority of those getting caught with crack cocaine were young African-American males. So now in our, in our prison system, we have so many males that went away under these Len-biased drug laws and we've actually been trying to undo them for the last two presidents. They've actually been passing laws trying to undo this problem that was created because a basketball player died after being drafted as the number one draft pick, and we created laws because of it. That's the collection of laws known as the Len Bias laws. Right. Even though even though the, the cocaine that he used was what would typically be, would you say, on the higher end side versus the crack cocaine? So was it a crackdown just on the product or on the people who were using the product? So the laws, the, the mandatory minimum sentences were skewed towards the amount you had. And it was 100 to 1 it's, uh, skewed more heavily towards how much crack you had on you versus oh, wow. how much powdered cocaine. And it also the, the idea was to get the drug dealers, like the big drug dealers. But what ended up happening is they didn't get the big drug dealers. They only got like the street-level possession and the street-level dealers. So the whole idea was they're going to take down these big drug dealers, but they could actually you know, create the, the crack cocaine and adding things like baking soda and then all of a sudden the volume goes up and now when you find the guy who has the most, it's the guy in the street, not the big kingpin that they were trying to get. Right. In interesting stuff. I, I, I Like I said, I found it fascinating. Uh, for everyone listening, please be sure to, to grab a copy. I'm assuming you can find it on Amazon or wherever you get your books. Um, what What's next on the agenda for you? Well, there there is one story that I'm I'm working on that is uh, a tragedy in sports that I discovered while I was looking up various topics to to write my book about. But this particular athlete, he did not fall in the Cobra effect category. But I thought his story was interesting enough and, and not very 
uh, much told that I think it's going to be quite interesting to folks uh, to learn about it. So I'm working on that one, and you can stay tuned for hopefully a new book on, on a tragedy in sports that's actually quite inspiring. Well, I definitely will look forward for that one when it comes out. Please let me know. I would love an advanced copy. Um, and Dr. D- uh, Jonathan Gelber, who is the author of Tiger Woods is Back, Tommy John's Elbow, Injuries and Tragedies that Transformed Careers, Sports, and Society. It's available uh, wherever you get your books. Uh, thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Happy to come back anytime. This week in spoiler alert, it's sad. It's depressing. It's sports. We will not have sports until at least the 1st of August. Mark it down in your calendars. I'm sorry to be the one to break your hearts, but we will not be having sports until at least August the 1st. This global pandemic that is heart-wrenching and is depressing and sad is taking away the one pleasure that we may have had for at least another four months. Now, does that mean basketball will be done for the year? Maybe. Does that mean hockey will be done for the year? Maybe. Does it mean the NFL will probably start a little bit later than scheduled? Yes, 100%. What about baseball? Well, they better figure out a shortened season because I don't think daily double headers is the answer. So this week's spoiler alert is depression because sports will not be returning until at least August the 1st. So that's this week's episode of the Sports Psych Podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at AK Sports Psych. Also, don't forget to keep sending in your comments and ideas for segments. We love to hear them all. And if you'd like to join the show, let us know. We'd love to have you. So what did we learn this week? Michael Jordan's the greatest. Yeah, obviously. The NFL draft is going to have some serious issues with their lack of physicals to players, obviously. And we learned from Dr. Jonathan Gelber about the Cobra effect. And make sure to go out and get that book because it's a great read. And lastly, and sadly, in spoiler alert, no sports until August. Have a great day, everybody.